Jeremiah 25. So, I hope the title doesn't scare you too much. I hope you know me by now. A proper prosperity gospel. So, we're coming up to the new year. It's obvious. I think we begin to start talking about it if you haven't already been thinking about it. We come to this time when people talk about their resolutions. And the minute someone says New Year's resolutions, there is instantly two immediate responses to the phrase New Year's resolution. You have the people who say, I'm on board with those. I love my New Year's resolutions. And you're the person that makes a list and you strategize how you're going to get to each of these resolutions. And you have bullet points underneath those goals to show how you're going to do it. And by March, I need to be here. We have those people who love New Year's resolutions. They take this time of year as a perfect time to reassess where they are and where they need to be. Then we have the people who roll their eyes at the concept. Okay, I'll look over here. And roll their eyes at the concept of a New Year's resolution. Because they're like, come on, let's be honest. It's just another day on the calendar. I can start my resolution whenever. And by the way, I have tried this New Year's resolution thing, and I every year fail by July. No, I meant January 11th. <laughs> if you made it to July, good job. Most of us do fail at resolutions, and that's, that's a fact, and that's okay. It's, either one of your reactions is okay, because tonight, I don't want to talk about your New Year's resolution. And Jeremiah, as the prophet to Israel at the time when they are obliterated by the Babylonians and go into exile, which means physically removed from their homeland to live in another land, in this traumatic setting, this prophet comes to the people, and he does not say, hey, I guess it's time for some new resolutions. Instead, he says, God has a resolution for you. And I think it would be appropriate tonight if we heard what God's resolution for us is. As we go into the new year, yeah, it's great to have plans, but as one person said, you want to make God laugh? Tell him your plans. So yes, I believe that setting goals is a good thing. But tonight, we need to do something that goes against our nature. And it's to stop and say, wait, maybe someone else has a goal for me. Maybe this God who made me has a goal. And maybe I should align my goals with whatever his goal is. So, we would be amiss if we did not emphasize this verse when we came into Jeremiah and got to this point. So if you had read ahead, you would know where I'm going. This is Jeremiah 29, verse 11. This is the postcard of the prophet Jeremiah. If he sent... If he sent letters today, if he signed emails, sent them to you, you see at the very bottom, instead of CEO of whatever, he would say, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. This is, this is his tagline, at least as we've attributed it to him. Jeremiah 29, 11 reads in the English Standard Version, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Or if you will permit me to read to you from the message, not always the best study Bible, but I like the way it illuminates this passage here. It says, I know what I'm doing. I have it all planned out. God knows what he's doing and he has it all planned out. That's great news. 
goes on, plans to take care of you, not abandon you. Plans to give you the future you hope for. So here we have God declaring to us, I have a vision for you. I have goals for you. I know what I want your life to come out to, and I have it planned out. And I want to give this to you. And so we see that Jeremiah, at this time of year, appropriately, here we are, he says, look, look, you have goals, great. But let's hear God's New Year resolution for this group of believers. God wants you to prosper. Now, don't start coming to conclusions. Because the way God does this is different than the way Americans desire it to be done. I was reading a book in which the author was describing people who sit down to write books in order to be published. And so they always come to these writer experts and ask them, what must I do to be published? And they keep asking, and the writer expert only wants to guide them in how to write. But they're always, I, no, I want to be published. But no, writing's a painful process. You need to learn to love writing. Because there's no shortcut to getting published. And I thought that was a great illustration of how we live most of our lives. We have the goal in mind, and we want to get to the goal, but we don't like the procedure to get there so much. So we're always looking for the quick fix, the shortcut, get me over there now. But there's a process that's meant to shape us. There's a process we're meant to go through and fall in love with. God, in other words, is not the genie who says, I want you to prosper, give me your wish, I will grant it. He doesn't work that way. What that, ex- what that shows is that you think you are God and God is your servant. You've basically flipped roles. You're the one in the heavens and God is the one on earth supposed to do what you ask him to do. That's not how God prospers us. You see, we want prosperity, but God wants us to become people who are prosperous. He wants you to be a person who thrives, a person who's reaching the potential that God has put within your life. And so he's going to take us on paths that don't look prosperous, but are about getting you to let go of the things that are holding you back and challenging you in ways that you would never have stepped out onto your own and calling you to surrender this and to step into this unknown and to live by faith. He's calling you into these steps so that you stop clinging to your addictions that are sabotaging your life and go and go into a path that's creating you into a prosperous person. See, the difference is, I may want to have these things that didn't happen at Christmas. Why didn't you look at my my list, people? I wanted those things. Like, that's how we think of prosperity. We, we want these things added to our lives. God looks at us and says, you are missing it. None of this is going to actually give you a more prosperous life. I'm looking within, and I'm wanting to tweak this and make that more healthy, make that grow, and pull this wheat out. And so the book of Jeremiah is actually a book about this in many ways, in which the Jews are holding on to their temple and saying, oh, but God's going to bless us because we have the temple. And Jeremiah comes around and says, "Uh, uh, uh, uh-uh-uh-uh, God is going to uproot and tear down before he replants and builds up. And the people are like, no, 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 replant and build up. That's all we want. And he's like, nope, 
There's a process here because we've gone, we've got so much messed up in our lives. Jeremiah warns the people over and over and over that there's going to be some real hardships coming on. The Babylonians are coming. And you've, if you've been going through Jeremiah with this, you've heard the graphic imagery that Jeremiah gives us with the dreaded Babylonians coming. So, what we want to see is as we look at Jeremiah 29, 11, God wants you to succeed. So, you know, if you're reading from the New King James, you, you miss, unfortunately, uh, you miss a little bit of this because the King, New King James says, I know the thoughts I have for you, uh, thoughts for peace. And peace is a bit tame of a word. The English Standard Version says welfare. Uh, the message said, I want to take care of you. And I looked it up, and the word behind peace, welfare, um, take care of you, is shalom, which was the Jewish greeting for hello and goodbye. It often means peace, but the problem with the word peace is we usually think of peace as being that brief moment in history when everyone stands around reloading. <laughs> but that's not the kind of peace that's in the Bible. The peace that's being described here refers to wholeness, completeness. It refers to health and wealth. It refers to uh, having everything as it should be. It's that moment where you're like, ah, shalom. It just sounds like a full word, doesn't it? That's what it entails. So the English Standard Version chose the word welfare, which I think gets somewhat. I think when we think of welfare, you think you're in a bad place trying to get a little bit, right? Uh, so it's not a great word either, but it's getting us to the idea of God actually wants the Israelites to prosper. But before we, we go into this calling it ah, a prosperity gospel, we need to understand it's a proper prosperity gospel. Because where is God telling this to the Israelites. Where are they hearing this good news of prosperity? In Babylon. In Babylon. Look with me up a little bit. We're going to start in chapter 29. We're going to go back to some of the other chapters. Chapter 29, verse 1. So this is around, if you care, if you don't, you can tune me out for a minute. This is around 597 B.C., this is right when the first wave of exiles go up to uh, the second wave, excuse me, the second wave of exiles go up to Babylon, and uh, Jeremiah is writing to them, the Jews who are in Babylon, he's writing to them. So this letter is being sent all the way to Babylon, and so we're about 10 years before the actual city of Jerusalem crumbles into ruins, 10 years to the end. So he says in 29.1, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar, that's king of Babylon, had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah, you might remember last week his nickname is Coniah, King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the metal workers, in other words, everyone who's anyone, this is after they had all departed from Jerusalem. Verse 3, the letter was sent by the hand of Elisha, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Helikiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It's quite an intro. This is what the letter said in verse 4. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, 
to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. God, God's saying, I don't want you to go to Babylon and become less than what I had planned for you. I don't want you to shrink your existence to become miserable just because it's not the place you want to be. No, no, don't decrease. Verse 7, but seek. Here it is. The shalom, the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to Yahweh on its behalf for in its shalom, you shall find your shalom. For thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares Yahweh. Then we come to our famous verse. For thus says Yahweh, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, being Jerusalem. For I know the plans I have for you, declares Yahweh, plans for shalom and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you, and you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. There's a lot going on here. But what we need to see right off the bat is that Israel is in a very bad place. They're in exile. Now, we experience exile in little ways. It's any time you go to a new place, you don't know the people, and you're feeling like a fish out of water. You realize everybody here likes a different sports team. They have a different lingo. Outside of California, apparently they didn't call their freeways the 91. It's just 91. Um, we're weird because we put the... Like You're learning all these different things. Like, I didn't know that. I feel like a foreigner in this land. And we get these small glimpses of what it's like to be relocated and this foreigner and the stranger. But ultimately, we have no clue what it's like because anytime I go to, is, to uh, Arizona to visit the in-laws with Brittany, um, they have all the chains I'm familiar with. Grocery stores? Yeah, I recognize that name. I recognize that name. And all, all the grocery stores work just like they work here. It's not like I walk in Arizona and suddenly, why is everyone shouting about prices and bartering and people are fighting over peanuts and what's going on? It's not like a totally different world. I go into another place and, okay, they call their freeways different things, but we still purchase food the same way. The dairy is usually at the back of the store and every, you know, everything's sort of in a similar mode. And, oh, I recognize McDonald's and I recognize In-N-Out. And if you go on the East Coast, you missed that one. But, you know, you're, you're recognizing things. We have a lot of similarity. Israel is going to a completely different culture. 
They speak a completely different language. They worship completely different gods. They have completely different stories that they tell their children, tell their children at bedtime. They eat different foods with different spices. Their tongues are not acquainted with. They have different currency. They have a different way of living in their homes, a different way of going about the customs. Apparently, if you shake hands here, it's rude. But if you shake hands there, it's not rude. And there are all kinds of things they have to learn. And it's really easy. It's really easy in this context, especially when you're in this situation with a lot of your friends to say, let's huddle together and protect ourselves from everybody else. Let's just live in this little ghetto and make sure nobody will throw rocks at anybody who comes through. No Babylonians allowed. Don't walk on the grass. That's not the heart, though, that Jeremiah wanted for them. Jeremiah says, hey, hey, guys, if you want to prosper in your exile, if you want to find that God is everywhere, even in the lowest place of your history, that he's even there, then I want you to show up to your community and to the people and to the situation, because even here, even here, there is shalom There is prosperity if you're willing to live in it. So, prosperity gospel would say, God wants to prosper you. If you're in exile, you are in a bad place. God can't be there. Get out of there. Go chase this dream and fix this and leave your spouse because that's not God's plan for you. And I don't know, I'm throwing, it's coming to my head. But that's not what we see here. Jeremiah is saying, wait, wait, wait. No, God does want to prosper us, but sometimes that means the road goes really deep into the valley of the shadow of death. But even there, I will fear no evil. For your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That's the prosperity Jeremiah is giving to the people here. But notice also this concept of, it said in verse uh, 10, that, look, Babylon's days are numbered. In 70 years, I will come visit you. 70 years. So this is where we're going to look at the previous chapters because there's this other tension happening. They're in exile. And yes, there were wealth and health prosperity preachers in Jerusalem and in Babylon who were saying, basically, you're going to see in a minute, they're saying this, whoa, 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 don't get carried away, people. Two years at most. We'll be in Babylon for two years, and then God will deliver us. So just just never move out of your suitcase. Live in your suitcase. Sleep in a sleeping bag. Don't get cozy. Pack a lot of granola bars, because we'll be out of there in no time. Don't learn their customs and things. That's what they're saying. Because this can't be God's plan for us to be in exile. So just seek a more prosperous path. Jeremiah is the one who's saying the complete opposite. And he's saying, nope. This is God's plan. It's not two years, people. It is 70. So most of you are going to die here. And you're going to have kids here. I suggest you flourish right where you're replanted. Like it or not. God can make you prosper here. So, chapter 25. This is how it all begins. In chapter 25... Verse 11. For the first time, Jeremiah begins to speak out that the Babylon is severe, or that the, the exile is severe. For a while, the Israelites are saying, look, yeah, okay, they're taking tribute from us, the Babylonians, they kind of own us, but they will never destroy God's city. They will never destroy the temple. Well, Jeremiah's like, guys, it's worse than you think. So in 25.11, he says this. 
This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then the good news is after the 70 years are completed, I will punish king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity. So, it's going to be 70 long years, but don't worry, God will get rid of the bad guys in time and he'll take care of them. Then in chapter 26, we have this really interesting episode where we actually are going back, I've said this a few times, remember that Jeremiah is not in chronological order and it's really a mess of going forward, backward, forward, backward. Well, we're doing this again. And actually, chapter 26 connects with chapter 7. You might remember in chapter 7, Jeremiah stood in, in the temple courtyard and he declared a sermon in which he said, I see what you're all doing. You're hiding from God. You've made the temple a hideout for thieves, a den of robbers. You're hiding from God in your very act of worship. We didn't see anything come out of that. He just gave this fire and brimstone message about how the valley is going to be filled with dead bodies. And then it kind of ends. He ends with him weeping about the people. Chapter 26 picks up the end result of that message. So we see a summary of it. Jeremiah is saying the temple's going to be destroyed. And how do you think the people like that message? Not at all. In fact, actually, according to the priests, Jeremiah is speaking blasphemy because the priests are teaching the people God will never let his house be destroyed. Jeremiah comes around and basically says the most unorthodox thing that his people are being taught. He says, no, God is actually going to destroy his own house. That's blasphemy, they basically cry. They shred their clothes and they want to kill him. So, in chapter 26, you see Jeremiah put on trial. And one man named Hiakim speaks up and says, wait a minute, guys. Do you see Jeremiah? He's saying, all right, if you guys want to kill me, kill me. But I have to speak God's word. And Hiakim's like, uh, he seems to think he's speaking God's word. Do you think maybe we should allow him to do so? There was a king in our past anyways who allowed, uh, who allowed people to do the same. Shouldn't we allow... Basically, it's like freedom of speech he's trying to protect here. That the prophet needs to have freedom of speech or he will never declare God's word. So Jeremiah spared because someone went to bat for him. But that doesn't mean people liked him. Chapter 27, Nehemiah gives a message which is also not going to be received well. So in 27 verse 1. In the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Remember Zedekiah? The Z, just as a good way to remember it, the Z means he's the end. He's the last king of Israel. So we're here, we're in the last decade. Jerusalem's going to be obliterated within 10 years. So Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh to me. Make yourself straps and yoke bars and put them on your neck. The yoke, perhaps you've seen it. It's a big wooden piece with cutouts for the neck of two animals so that you have the stronger animal under one end of the yoke and then the weaker animal that's in training under the other end of the yoke so that the weaker animal can learn to plow a field. You put the plow behind the yoke. He can learn to plow the field with the efficiency of the stronger animal without them getting off balance. So, um, here's this image. Take this yoke, Jeremiah, put it around your neck. What's supposed to go on the other side? This is where the message gets really, really gnarly. 
send word to the king of Edom. So he's, he says, let, let not only Jerusalem hear this, but all these kings. And then in verse 5, this is the message. It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth. See how the animals are tying in with the yoke. And I give it to whomever it seems right to me. Now, I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. And I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. But, so in sum, look guys, the whole earth, God's field, has been given over to Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to plow it. It's his how, how insulting, Jeremiah. Didn't God give this land to us, the Israelites? Not anymore. It's now Nebuchadnezzar's. In verse 8, But if any nation or kingdom will not serve this Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, I will punish that nation with the sword, with famine, and with pestilence, declares Yahweh, until I have consumed it by his hand. So do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your fortune tellers, your prosperity preachers, your sorcerers who are saying to you, you shall not serve the king of Babylon. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you with the result that you will be removed far from your land and I will drive you out and you will perish. But any nation that I will bring, any nation that will bring its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I will leave on its own land to work it and dwell there, declares Yahweh. So Jeremiah has a clunky yoke around his neck. It's all a balance because one side is empty and he's, he's preaching, right? Hey, hear, hear. The whole world belongs to Nebuchadnezzar. So what God is saying is get your neck under this yoke and serve the king of Babylon and it will go well with you. If not, it will not go well with you. Can you just see the guy? Can you imagine me struggling with this big piece of wood up here the whole time? Jeremiah is using this illustration to say Babylon wants you to join them. And you might remember last week, our Christmas message talked about how Jeremiah is calling people to surrender to their greatest fear, to surrender to the king of Babylon, which seems so bonkers. But that was where he said they would find their life. Go for the plunge. God will take care of you. That's the message. And of course, they didn't take it well. So in chapter 28, you have one of the prosperity preachers named Hananiah. Hananiah... And it turns this into a debate, who basically now gives a, a rebuttal. In that same year, at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fifth month of the fourth year, Hananiah, son of Azur, the prophet from Gibeon, spoke to me, Jeremiah says, in the house of Yahweh, in the presence of the priests and all the people, saying, so Hananiah organizes this, so it's in a public place, the temple, there's an audience of priests and important people and common people, so the show is on, right? He's going to debate this loony prophet, Jeremiah, he's going to debate him, and he's going to, of course, get more popularity, because he's the popular preacher. Um, So, he gathered everyone, they're all there, everyone's watching, and in verse 2, he says, This is Hananiah speaking. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon within two years. Ah, so Hananiah is the one to 
preaching the two-year message. Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the vessels of Yahweh's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I will also bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares Yahweh, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. What do you say to that, Jeremiah? You just told us to take the yoke on, and I'm saying, God told me in two years that yoke's me broken. So, come on, people, you tell me. Should we take the yoke on, or should we, should we fight it out for two years? We can do this for two years, can't we? And Jeremiah, his response to this is simply to clap his hands and say, Bravo, Hananiah, bravo. Amen, brother. I really wish that that was true. And then he walks off. Everyone's like, what? That didn't go how we thought it would. But then, as he's, as he's walking off, God speaks to Jeremiah. Don't you, don't you relate to that? How, like, you're in this, like, someone's saying something, you're like, uh, but the, uh, you're wrong, I don't know how. Mm. Could come back. Um, and then you're walking here, like, oh, my goodness, ten things I could have said. Well, Jeremiah has that moment, so he comes back. And this is what he says. Which is good. Which is good, because this means Jeremiah's not fighting in fury, right? He's not in his flesh and all amped up and trying to defend his message. God, he has a moment where God can speak in the quiet of his heart. Now he's actually speaking God's word. And in verse 10, um, go tell, uh, verse 13, go tell Hananiah, thus says Yahweh, you have broken wooden bars but you have made in their place bars of iron. I forgot to tell you in verse 10 that before Jeremiah stormed off, Hananiah took the yoke off Jeremiah's neck and broke it to symbolize the people. Don't submit to Babylon. We'll fight them. We'll break them in two years. So Jeremiah comes back, kicks the broken pieces of wood and says, You thought wooden ones were easy? Now they're going to be iron. And the point is, you can't fight against Babylon. They are powerful. You're not, if you, if you rebel at all, they're going to come back with an even greater force. And that's, that's so true with God. If He's doing something in our lives that we need to surrender Him, to Him in, the more we resist, the harder we're gonna make it for ourselves. But the prosperity preachers are saying, no, 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 that's too hard. That's too uncomfortable. Surrendering to Babylon. Don't go that way. God says that everything's supposed to be fluffy and really good for you. I know the plans I have for you, they may misquote. But Jeremiah is saying, uh, no, actually, if we don't do the challenges God puts in our life, we actually might make our life harder by trying to live in comfort. So people, who are you going to listen to? Well, apparently, who do you think people listen to? Mm, Hananiah's message sounds easier. So they do. So Jeremiah writes his letter in chapter 29 to the people in Babylon And now you hear what he's saying. He tells them, hey, don't decrease. Don't withdraw from the city. Rather, I want you in verse 5, 29, 5, I want you to build houses and live in them. This is not a two-year vacation. This is not the family's house you stayed at for Christmas last week. 
You're not just cruising and eating whatever they give you when you're actually needing to make a life for yourself. So build homes and live in them. Marry, plant gardens. He's saying, figure out how Babylonians do Babylon so that you can become a contributing member of their society. Because as you give them shalom, God will give Israel shalom. For in their shalom, you'll find your shalom. Their prosperity, your prosperity. That's the message that Jeremiah is giving them, is you want a proper prosperity gospel. It begins with recognizing that God sometimes leads us in places you wouldn't ordinarily choose for yourself, but will even there find the ability to transform into the kind of person who can now look at others. And rather than always thinking about, how can I have shalom in my life? You start living and saying, how can I create shalom in the lives around me? And as soon as the lives around you have shalom, the promise is that you will find shalom. You create shalom not from within, you create it from, you create it by putting it in the lives of the people around you. So, Jeremiah is saying, get the two-year mentality out of your head. That's escapism. That's the thought of, we don't have to invest, we don't have to be present to this. We can just keep on thinking about Jerusalem and doing... This is the way we are with uncomfortable conversations or people. Get out our phone... Or, 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 or we recognize that times are tough. We say, ah, I don't need to deal with it. God's coming back anyways, hopefully this year. <laughs> hopefully. But I don't know. It could be another 70 years. Maybe, maybe we need to be present to what's in front of us. And Jeremiah is challenging them with that. So that is where they will find their shalom, their prosperity. Friends, what we see in the Israelites is a tendency within us is this denial, this denial that a Christian can experience exile at all, that a Christian will have times of depression. No, Christians can't be depressed. I've talked to a lot of them. Honestly, that's denial. That's denial. That's just saying we don't want to deal with depression because we don't like it. That's not the prosperous gospel we thought we believed. No, actually, you're still human, and you're going to have human tendencies. You might get depressed. You can't deny that. You're not helping yourself by denying depression. You can't help yourself by denying anxiety. No, no, I'm not anxious. I just have a really fast heart rate right now. I just have unexplainable hives. I don't know. It's, It's weird. It's the air. I'm allergic to the air. Maybe you're actually anxious. That's okay. God has given us a path to help with that. It's not that, oh, Christians should never feel these things. We can't live in denial. If we have addictions, and we, of course, always think drugs and alcohol, that's addiction. No, there's so many other littler addictions. The things we turn to constantly to avoid the reality of life. It could be as simple as television or ice cream. We have addictions or complaining to someone that we have a confidence in. Oh, no, no, I'm just, I'm just airing my heart. I'm just airing it out. No, you're, you're actually slandering and gossiping, but that's okay. It's your addiction. Um, it's not okay. We have our own addictions, but we continue to deny them. Oh, no, 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 you, know, you don't understand. I just feel better. It's just, it's just a little, it's my one little vice. Or you're looking at the table contents, you're like, it's slow churned. Hmm, half the calories, half the sugar. I'm okay. But you're still, your heart's still attached to something. I'm not saying that eating ice cream is bad, by the way. 
But it's this mentality of we love to deny reality when it's staring us in the face. And here Israel has literally been transported to another land. God's like, hello! You wanted to serve idols in your land, so I took you to a land that's full of them. And you're still saying, no, God didn't do this. He's going to deliver us in two years. You and I shake our heads, but friends, we are the same. We are the same. And what I want us to do is tonight, as we're on the eve of the eve, the penultimate eve, that's a big word for you, of New Year's, we're on the night, okay, you got it. As we come to New Year's, we are hearing God's plan for us. I want this year, I want you to grow in this year. I don't want you to decrease in your place. I want you to increase. And I want you to bring shalom where you go so that you will have shalom in your own life. I want that for you. And he says that to each of us. There's no conditions there, okay? That's what he wants for us. That's his New Year's resolution for us tonight. But we can get so excited on turning our back on the past and that we can just lunge into the future too fast. That we can just say, yep, 2018 was a hard year. I'm going to lunge into God's resolution for me, but we're denying everything that we're going to take with us into the new year. There, there are things. It's December 30th. You've got time. There are things that have not been dealt with this year. There are relationships that need to be mended. There are emotions that you've been denying. There are health concerns. There are things that God's asking you to surrender. There is that goal to start reading the Bible in 2018, which you still haven't done. Whatever it is, it's not too late to put an end to what needs to be ended. But we will never enter into the shalom of the new year of God's plan for us if we continue to deny the reality that we're sitting in in this moment. So, there are two sides here. Those of you who have resolutions, great. Make one of yours to stop denying that which you are avoiding and to face up to it. And then for those of you who say, there's no such thing as a New Year's resolution. You're right. You're right too. Because just because the calendar went from 2018 to 2019 doesn't mean your life changes. It's not a magic wand. Woo, everything will be better this year. It's a new start. Actually, I'm going to wake up in the exact same bed I went to sleep in in 2018. And I'm still going to have to make it. And the same carpet is there. And the same laundry pile. And the same... Oh, look. The food in the fridge is the exact same food I left there. It's really amazing how that works. Guys, we cannot, we cannot have the mentality of, you know what? Forget this year. Forget those problems. Here's my resolution. Here's what God wants to do with me. Let's go for it. We cannot leave parts of ourselves behind because that's decrease. And that's what God asked them not to do. Don't decrease. I want you to be complete and whole. Shalom. So, I'm asking you, what are you denying? What is the metaphorical exile that you are living in denial about. What is that? The solution is simple. It's to show up. Tonight, I want us, before we go home, I want us to show up. Now, 
Good job. You're here. You showed up. That, that's a good start. But how often do we come to church and we show up physically, but spiritually we left a big part of ourselves over there? Or our mind is concerned over here and we're not bringing our full selves to God. We're not showing up. We're just moving our bodies God said at the end of 29.11, the big promise of prosperity, 29.12 said this. When that happens, there's going to be this, this connection to your prosperity, and it's this. It's that you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. You will show up. That is part of how this works. We cannot enter into the prosperity that God has for us if we don't show up, which might mean waking up and realizing I'm in Babylon and I wish I wasn't here. But is my denying it going to change it? If I just stay in my ghetto and never hear the Babylonian tongue, does that make it my native tongue? That's decrease, friends. That's decrease. You're going to make your circle tighter and tighter and tighter. And we got to show up. So God's saying, bring all your heart to me. And also, this is going to kickstart when it says in verse 10, that says, Yahweh, when 70 years are complete, I will visit you. I will show up to you. I will show up. Woody Allen is well known as an actor, of course, but he he has this thing that's been quoted around a lot. And he says that 80% of success is showing up. 80% of success is showing up. And that just, that that quote came, I don't know when I heard it, something, I think it was like five years ago, literally. We're in a different house. It was a long time ago. That quote came to me when I woke up this morning. I was like, oh yeah, show up. Like, if 80% of success is just showing up, God's, God's asking you and I, just show up tonight. Just show up to Him. And face, face what it is. Stop denying or relabeling everything. Saying, no, 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 things are fine. God never said things had to be fine. He never said that. Prosperity preachers say things have to be fine. So put on the face, deny those things, do whatever you need to do to make things fine. That's not, that's not reality. Things are not always fine. And God's saying, show up to that. Just bring that here. I have big shoulders. Speaking of shoulders, we're going to finish in chapter 25. There's one part we didn't read. Well, there's one of the parts we haven't read. Speaking of shoulders, Jeremiah uses a word here that means shoulder. But through usage has been translated to mean different things. And I'll show you this. Look at 25 verse 3. 25 3. For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day, 23 years the word of Yahweh has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you. Or, New King James, uh, I've spoken to you early in the morning, something like that. I've spoken persistently to you early in the morning, but you have not listened Okay, the phrase in the New King James, early in the morning, is the word shakem in Hebrew. In the English Standard Version, it says, 
persistently. I've spoken persistently. Shakim. I have spoken early in the morning. Shakim. Okay, you see, these are the same Hebrew word, but are coming out very differently. Early in the morning, persistently. Uh, what's going on? Well, Shakim really means shoulder. It means shoulder. Now you're thinking, why doesn't it say shoulder? Because this is what happened, is that the word shoulder came to mean early in the morning. And this is how. Um, you would, in, in an environment like Israel, when it got extremely hot in the middle of the day and you had to walk wherever you go, when you would pack your animals, you would put the burdens on their shoulders, right? And the people who carried the, the sacks would also put them on their shoulders. Now, in order to get as far as you can before the sun got too hot to continue under the burden, they would get up as early as possible to start on their journey. So the association between putting the burden on your shoulder and getting up early to beat the heat became all of that idea fell under the word shakim. So the New King James says, Jeremiah says, I have been preaching to you early in the morning. Well, now you get why. But then the meaning also came to be known as persistently. Because in order to get up early and to beat the heat, there was a persistence that was necessary. And so this word has this broad diversity of meaning, which is why you read it the way you read it. To get up early in the morning for 23 years to preach the word to people who won't listen? Is persistence not a good word for that? That's, that's, why, that's why I always encourage people, read in more than one translation, because you're missing, it's, it's, it's really, it's what my professor told me is the poor man's, this is Hebrew, but the poor man's Greek lexicon. If you don't know Greek, the poor way to do it is just read a bunch of English translations and you like start to get a sense of the diversity. Um, we went through all this trouble because this is what we need to see. Jeremiah showed up. For 23 years, when nobody cared or listened, 23 years it's been, and he keeps showing up early in the morning, persistently. He's getting up before the sun because he knows he's going to be rejected all day. He knows Hananiah is going to break his yoke and make fun of him in front of the whole temple. He knows that people are going to put him on trial to try to kill him. He knows that he's going to be considered a treacherous, blasphemous, lying prophet that nobody's going to accept. He knows this is coming every day for 23 years. So in response, he gets up before the sun to hear God tell him who he is so that he doesn't have to buy into who everyone else else tells him who he is. And doing that for 23 years before the sun is up, that is persistence. And friends, showing up is not just a matter of, God, here I am. It's a good start. But it is the persistence of always facing reality and not denying that it's there. And one of the things, if we want to enter into God's resolution for us, prosperity it begins with us showing up persistently 80% of success is showing up what that means is showing up all the time it doesn't mean pastor brandon shows up one sunday a month it means i'm here as much as i can right 
And that's something Pastor Mike has beat into my heart. Persistently show up. Because showing up is what counts. So God wants you and I to prosper even in the slums of Babylon. But the idea is not, Jeannie, grant me my wishes. The idea is that God is there too. If we show up, we will find him. If we show up, we will find he is in the gutter. He is in the sewer. He's in the tent. He's in the house. He's even in the palace. He's everywhere I show up. The best thing we can do going in is to start deciding in response to the God who shows up to us that we will show up in response. That's, that's where it starts. So rather than saying this is uncomfortable or this isn't the way I planned it or this is against my resolutions and creating a system of denials, Jeremiah is inviting us to be present to the moment and to say right here, right now, is God's invitation to me to be fully alive in his plan. Because where I am right now is his plan. Am I going to show up to it? Or am I going to continue to say, that can't be it. I'm going to try this. Show up, show up, show up. You and I will grow up when we show up. And I think God wants that for us in 2019. He wants to see us growing up continually. The question is whether or not we will show up every day to hear His voice. If we'll show up in every awkward moment to see what God wants to teach us in it. To see if we will show up to everything we've committed to. Will we be people who show up or will we keep running? Will we keep hiding? So we're going to take communion um, as a way of... Daniel's going to come up. We're going to pass communion out to you tonight. And we're going to take the communion as a way of showing up. Do it this year. Don't, please don't, please don't take him like, yay to next year and take your communion. (laughs) There needs to be a moment when you ask God, what have I denied through 2018? What have I not shown up to? Because it will shadow you into the next year. This is the chance to say, I see that you have the best plan and I don't want to miss it because I've been trying to stuff things. I want to show up to this moment now. Maybe you were dragged here for all I know. You have a great opportunity to practice showing up because being here is not what it means. Wishing you're watching college football is not what showing up means. So... um, as the songs played, as the communion is passed out, hold on to it and have a moment where God invites you to show up. And then we'll take it together.